0: Morning, Saints. <laughs> good morning, Sinners. Good morning, it's Sunday morning at Seoul, and you're all here, and it's good to be here. You know, every once in a while you have a win, and uh, I want to share a win with you this week. As you know, we've, uh, I've been talking about money, I've been saying that we've been behind, and I just want to say thank you and encourage you that for the month of October— we actually finished $37,000 in the black. So that's good, all right? So I talked to one of the steering committee members, and they said, well, tell them we're still not out of the woods yet, so keep, keep doing what you're doing. So thank you very much, and uh, just bring you up to speed to where we're at, which is always a good thing. I want to shout out to the guys who are out on the streets this morning. Welcome to the cars, right? Fantastic. I have two snowmobile suits if you need. i will willing to donate to anybody who wants to be out there. But it makes your day walking in, seeing people doing that. So thank you for those who have signed up and are committed to just welcoming and putting some, some warmth on a cold morning like today. If you're our guest today, I'm Jerry. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're just thrilled that you're here. Take it all in. Walk with us. And uh, I want to share with you what's going on in my heart. Let's pray first. God, I expect that you would do something mighty in our midst, and I acknowledge that we hold your scripture in our hands, most humbly, and so many times most feebly. And so this morning, we approach you with great fear and respect, because your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, and God, as we study this morning, um, speak to us. So I ask your Holy Spirit, help us see all the connections that we are part of a story that's thousands of years old, and uh, you have a plan and a purpose for us in all things. And through that, we will see Jesus and your kingdom is made available to us as we just share what you've placed in us. Amen. We're walking through the book of Matthew, and Jesus has been traveling through the cities and villages. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's healing the sick. He's proclaiming uh, his message, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus knew that there was so much more work to be done, and uh, uh, you know, he just couldn't accomplish it by himself. He knew he sort of needed help, so he began to select disciples and followers around him. And these disciples he selected, he, they watched him preach, they watched him teach, they heard his parables, his stories, um, and tried to become prepared to help Jesus with the work. It, it was almost like a discipleship school, so to speak. And it's important to notice that when we look at what Jesus is doing, he calls all sorts of people. You didn't have to be perfect when you were called by Jesus. None of the 12 men that he specifically called to follow him were born leaders. They weren't highly schooled. They weren't well positioned in the synagogue, religious rulership. He just called anybody and everybody. And, And Matthew doesn't tell us this, but we also know from other scriptures that Jesus also called women to be his disciples. Now, none of his followers really had training to heal or to preach before they met Jesus. None would have been uh, considered persons headed for sainthood or martyrdom. That was not even on their radar. But they dropped everything, and they began to follow Jesus without looking back. And and, and it must have been a really motley crew that were following. Somebody uh, contacted me this week and said, well, how old were the the disciples? Well, they could have been anywhere from 16 to early 20s. And uh, here they are. They're following this guy. And uh, just a bunch of misfits, really. And Scripture tells us that some didn't even get along with each other. As we read throughout the Scripture, we see that there was all kinds of jockeying. You know, who could be Jesus' favorite, his homeboy type thing. And even somebody's mom got involved in the whole picture. So this is part of the problem that was going on at the time. And, you know, uh, let me remind you that who the 12, though, that Jesus specifically picked for his mission. First, there was Simon Peter. He was a fisherman. He was a spokesman for the group. His impetuousness often got him into trouble. Uh, it's, it's Peter's brother, Andrew, who is also a fisherman. He is the guy that introduced Peter to Jesus. And so both brothers were in this together. James was one of the sons of Zebedee uh, who followed Jesus. He, he's called James the Greater. And uh, it's sort of dis- that's a distinguishment because there's another apostle named James that we'll get to in just a moment. But you have James, the son of uh, Zebedee, and he has a brother named John. And uh, Zebedee is also known as the sons of thunder. So it's kind of interesting. These guys must have had loud voices, uh, or their father had a loud voice. We're not quite sure. Um, But these guys also had this desire to punish anybody who slighted Jesus. John, the brother of James, was also a fisherman, uh, he was called the apostle that Jesus loved, and uh, he was one of, obviously, Jesus' closest friends, because on the cross, Jesus entrusts John to look after his mother Mary at his crucifixion. John's credited with writing the gospel of John, uh, second and third John, the book of Revelation. John continued to preach and teach until he died of old age. He was the only apostle who never died um, uh, for, uh, in terms of martyrdom. He died of old age. Uh, Philip was one of the first apostles to be called. He, he left John the Baptist to follow Jesus. He wasted no time in telling other people, um, like Bartholomew. And, and Bartholomew was also known as Nathaniel, and so those two names are used interchangeably. Uh, and so Bartholomew immediately recognized Jesus when he was first introduced as the Son of God. There was Matthew, also known as Levi, the customs official, the tax collector in Capernaum. Uh, the Jews hated this guy because he worked for Rome. He betrayed his countrymen. And when Jesus said, follow me, Matthew did. And he is the author of the gospel that we're going through right now. There was Thomas. Many of us know that name by doubting Thomas. He ended up going out to the far east to spread the gospel into Asia. James, son of Alphaeus. This is known as James the Less. Um, He's one of the least known of the apostles. Uh, And his only other mention in Scripture is actually the fact that he was in the upper room. Uh, We have Simon the Zealot, and uh, there's almost no mention of this guy either, except in the list of the apostles. And his life before following Jesus and after the resurrection is a mystery. The fact that he has that term zealot beside him refers to his religious zeal. Um, he could have been a member of the zealots, which were actually uh, really an assassin group during the period of time. They were anti-Roman and uh, took it into their own hands to try to deliver them from the, the land. We have Thaddeus. Thaddeus is, again, another one of the unknown apostles, only referenced in the list. Um, some people believe that Thaddeus actually wrote the book of Jude. Uh, at the end of the New Testament there. And then finally there's Judas Iscariot. Which is probably the most famous apostle. And not for any good reason. Many of us know the story of his betrayal of Jesus. Followed by his suicide. So those were the apostles that Jesus called to follow. And, and to help him. And throughout his short life on earth. This sort of this ill-sorted crew of people. Pulled together from all walks of life. People that would no- normally be friends or associates. And what it says is is that Jesus can and does call all kinds of people to follow him and this is actually a good thing because that includes you and me these disciples had no clue what was ahead of them their path would be fraught with discomfort with persecution and for the majority of them painful death yet so intense and so amazing is this man Jesus that their devotion to him was uncompromising, and they followed him right to the very end. You know, last week we looked at Matthew 10, 1 to 15. We saw how the apostles were told to go to the last sheep. They're focused on, on the, uh, Israel. And Jesus gave the disciples some very specific instructions. And if you missed out on that, you can catch it up on the podcast. that's up online. Last week I said this chapter is really divided into two parts. In that first part of the passage, you have Jesus telling the 12... Uh, what to do. And now what we, we see that Jesus begins to lay out what's about to happen. Very different. It's almost uh, um, presented to us in a very futuristic way. And many scholars believe that when Matthew was writing this, he was including many of Jesus' sayings all at once that took place throughout a period of time. And so that's why you've got this futuristic-sounding process that's going down. And so last week, we walked away from here realizing that we all have spiritual, physical, and social needs. And that the church plays a key role in not just getting the word out about Jesus, but also has the importance of community and how we all need each other. How we give of our time. How we give of our treasure, how we give of our talents, and how we should all be sharing in a, a common purpose. And what flows out of that is a unity. And we see that modeled in the first church experience in Acts chapter 2. But let's pick it up in verse 16. There's a shift in the context. It moves just beyond the instructions to the 12. And it's now instruction, Now the instructions begin to hit us The future followers of Jesus as to what to do and what to expect. I like to call this the little commission. Not the great commission. This is the little commission. Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. It's a dangerous world out there. There are those who are going to want to hunt you down. Now, he's not saying that we're to become sheep, you know, but rather the message that Jesus has, the message that we of believers have is very revolutionary but without the fight. You with me? We're not fighters. And so Jesus says, therefore, be as shrewd as snakes, be as innocent as doves. Take some personal responsibility, basically. Show some wisdom. Don't walk blindly, but think about what you're doing. Plan things out. Think every word. The words uh, are the most important thing. Try to avoid the conflict when possible, but whatever you do, remain bold proclaimers of the gospel message because it's a very dangerous world out there. So use your brains. Use your smarts. And then he goes on. He says, be on your guard. Watch out. Be careful is what he's saying. It doesn't say be fearful. No, he says, be careful. You're walking in a dangerous world. And so Jesus is prepping his boys, and he's also prepping you and me, not just of the immediate future, but what's to become much later. He's speaking prophetically here. And then he begins to what we call, what is known as the ABCs of persecution. You know, in our Western country, we cry foul if we can't, you know, pray in a school or hold a religious meeting in a public's place. You know, we cry, oh, we're being persecuted. No, I believe we need to look a little bit closer at what Jesus warns his disciples what will happen. And here again is the ABCs of persecution. You will be, A, handed over. You will be arrested, is what it's being said, to the local councils. And you will be, letter B, flogged. In other words, beatings arrests and beatings in the synagogues. On my account, see, you will be brought forth to the governors as kings and as witnesses to them and to the Gentile. In other words, there's going to be serious confrontations. Arrests, beatings, and confrontations. In other words, this little commission that Jesus is sending his 12 on and this little commission that applies to you and I has some serious consequences that we have to think about. These are heavy passages of Scripture, especially as believers. It's serious business, and it's interesting that the Apostle James, the son of Alphaeus, James the Lesser, he is the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred. He's actually killed by the sword on the orders of King Herod Agrippa I of Judea at about 44 AD, some 10 years after Jesus' resurrection. What well, didn't take much time for this to start playing itself out. And so he gives us warning. And then he turns around and he gives a word of comfort. He gives a comfort to the team. He says, but when they arrest you, don't worry. I like this. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what's to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. I don't know about you, but uh, I know there have been many times where I, I've had no clue what to say to people in specific circumstances about my faith. I don't know if you've ever been in that scenario where all of a sudden you're at a loss for words and, you know, what, what's, what do I say here? And yet Jesus is thinking about us now way back when, when he says this, you know, but yet we have all the excuses why we don't share our faith. You know, well Jerry, I don't know what to, to say, I don't know what to do. Jerry, there there are professionals out there who, who can do this. Jerry, it's not my job. Jerry, you know, I'm just not good a good enough Christian really to witness to others. Jerry, I'm afraid. And I think this is where we have to come back to what Jesus is saying to all of us, and he's saying, Look, don't worry. He sent his Holy Spirit to be with you, and if we rely on him, the Holy Spirit himself will begin to speak through us. That's just a mind-blowing thought. Have you ever been in a situation where all of a sudden you're placed on the spot, you have no idea what's coming out of your mouth, and it's only after you start talking and, and processing what just took place with other people. It's amazing because you now know that whatever you said, and maybe your mind was blank, but God was speaking through you. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. There will be times when you just rely on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and he begins to speak through us. And as we're obedient to this little commission, we got to realize that God actually does give us the tools, People. God will give us the words. God will give us the strength. And finally, God will teach us in this whole process. And what more can we ask for? He never leaves us alone. The mission is not just for professionals. The mission that we are sent out on is for all who profess Christ. If you're identifying yourself as a believer, you and I have this little commission right now. And now, all of a sudden, we start walking, and we continue to go through Matthew here, and we start seeing some of the hard sayings of Jesus. And they come out really clear. Brother will portray brother to death. And a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and, and have them put to death. Oh, my goodness. You'll be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you'll not finish going through the towns of Israel before the man, Son of Man comes. You think about, we're getting close to Christmas. The, the message of the angels on the night of Jesus' birth was glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill to men. This doesn't sound like peace. Isaiah 9, 6, Jesus' birth is predicted some 750 years before it happens. Prophecy goes on to say, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. He will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Oh, and I'm reading this passage and I see Jesus is saying some really harsh things. And, you know, I thought Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but it sure doesn't sound like it as we begin to walk into this passage. And one thing we know for sure is that Jesus didn't advocate conflict. He, he taught his followers to offer no resistance or no retaliation when they're attacked or ill-treated. You know, after all, it was Jesus who said way back earlier in Matthew, blessed are the peacemakers, He probably knew this firsthand because of the tensions. When we read scripture, we see there are tensions that are indicated even in his own immediate family. At the very beginning of his ministry, his immediate family had no sympathy for him. They tried to restrain him at one point because the people around him said, look at this guy's out of his mind. In John chapter 7, 5, we're told that even his own brothers didn't believe in him. There was some tension going on in Jesus' life. But what we have here is that Jesus is using an idiom to speak of a radical commitment necessary for discipleship. Something that supersedes even family love and often caused confrontation within the families. And he's using concrete terms. He's making it so specific so that we don't miss the point. What he's saying is following me can be a very challenging thing to do. It can lead us to very uncomfortable moments. Following Jesus can lead us to the loss of friendships and other relationships. It can lead us to hardships. Following Jesus could lead us to sufferings. And Jesus says that this will unfortunately happen. And it's not fun, nor is it easy when it does. But here's the irony of the whole statement. The message of Jesus' peace can bring problems. The message of peace can bring problems. The message of the Savior and salvation can bring strife and suffering. And so Jesus tells us and the disciples this morning that division and suffering will happen when we actually follow him. It doesn't make sense in the common mind. Believers have to avoid conflict and confrontation when possible, but yet at the same time evangelism must be our constant goal. But every time we go out and we represent Jesus, there's gonna be a challenge. He goes on, he says, the student is not above his above the teacher, nor the servant above his master. It's enough for the students to be like their teachers, the servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more are the members of the household? The implication here is that we as disciples are to be Christ-like. The more we're like our teacher, the more we might expect those that wish to slander Jesus will have a very unwelcoming demeanor towards us. Jesus' own critics called him satanic. Beelzebub. The guy's demon-possessed was an accusation. The, early, the uh, early settings of the Pentecostal uh, denomination, when it, when it started back in Azusa Street, it was interesting, way back at the turn of the century, the spirit flows out, there's a, a history tells us of it's Azusa Street, and um, uh, people would go from all over the world to go, and they would experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and some crazy stuff happened. And that was like the modern birthplace of the charismatic Pentecostal movement. And what would happen is that when people would go, they would encounter the Holy Spirit, they'd come back to their cities, they'd come back to their towns, they would go into their local church, and many of them filled with the Holy Spirit, many were speaking in tongues, but there was other demonstrations of the Spirit, gifts of prophecy, other things that were taking place, and they would go into their local church, and again, they would either begin to speak in tongues, begin to prophesy, and all of a sudden, the church would turn around and kick them out. And we would see that, especially in Canada, if you do the history of the Pentecostal Church throughout Canada, you would see that many of the the people were kicked out of their church and they were called demon-possessed, they were called crazy, they were called mentally ill um, and deviant, and they were actually kicked out of the church. And of course, all these (laughs) rebels, so to speak, got together and formed various different denominations that are still in existence today. But that thought has never gone away now, I identify as a Pentecostal. I have no problem with this concept of the Holy Spirit filling us, that there's something subsequent. There's, a, there's an experience subsequent to our salvation experience. There's something uh, in regards to us being, Paul says, keep on being filled, and we just need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is something that's constant in our life. And I went to a, a, a school, which will be nameless at the time. It's changed significantly since this time. But I'll never forget sitting in class and uh, talking about who the Holy Spirit is in class. And this is religious education. And the prof and I got into a discussion and a friend of mine was in the class as well who was also with me. We attended the same church. We identified as the only two Pentecostals on campus. And I'll tell you, people still carried this idea that Pentecostals were demon-possessed. So here, you know, Marty and I were probably not the best representation of Pentecostals in the first place. (laughs) But literally, and I kid you not, uh, one prof said to Marty in class, he says, you're a Pentecostal, speak in tongues right now. We had other people all around us, you know, looking at us like we were complete idiots that that we were demon-possessed. Marty actually played it up so much that at lunch hour he would eat and allow food to fall out of his mouth. And we would specifically sit across the guys that were hostile towards us to do this. So, like I said, we weren't the best reps. It was funny, but it was crazy. But what we find out is that even within church circles, if you're identifying with somebody, you're going to be labeled. And it's interesting as Christians in the world that we find ourselves and what Jesus is saying in this little passage here. Is that if they're going to be going after Jesus, they're going to be going after you. And this is where we need to be strong. And this is where we have to draw on the resources which God has placed within us. And this is where we need to stand firm in our faith. And yes, it's going to be tough. Western culture has created this, this crazy idea that when I become a Christian, everything should be nice and easy, and my problems should go away. Read the scriptures. My, <laughs> been asked. You, you get asked the question all the time. You know, how are you doing? How's today? How's it going? And. I've been. I think this week I've been more intentional about the whole thing. I I got first world problems. That's how my week's going. I got first world problems. Why? Well, I got a roof over my head. I got food in my belly. uh, I got clean drinking water. Not only that, I flush my drinking water down the toilet. You with me? I got. I got. I got a vehicle. Actually, I got more than one vehicle. And my vehicle's even have a house. You with me? How you doing? I got first world problems. And that's the culture we live in, and I think we miss what Jesus is trying to convey to all of us in regards to the dedication of living out our faith and what we're walking out. And we, we whine and we complain and we yell we're being persecuted when people don't like us because we're Christians. Or we identify with Jesus. Jesus goes on and he says, look, don't be afraid of them. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. I'll tell you uh, what I tell you in the dark. Speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your uh, ear, proclaim from the rooftops. In other words, get out there. The disciples need to make it a major uh, emphasis of their ministry, the broadcast to the world. Jesus is teaching. Just get out there and do it. We're not to keep quiet. We're, but plainly declare all that we have learned about Jesus to anybody who is willing to listen and hear. He goes on, he says, Don't be afraid of those that can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one uh, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And people can only hurt us temporarily, right? The Father can in us permanently. That's the one we need to be worried about. And so, as disciples, we need to learn to transfer our peers. Uh, our fears of people to God, and a a healthy fear of who God is, and in that process, just recognize how big God really is, and actually how much he really cares for us, because Jesus goes on, he says, are not two uh, sparrows sold for a penny, yet one of them will fall to the ground, outside your father's care, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so don't be afraid, you are worth so much more than many sparrows. He cares about the minute details in our lives. That's what Jesus is saying. Look, you're going to serve me. you got a mission. You go out there. But understand, you identify with me. You're going to get opposition. That's just the way it is. But understand, I'm with you. I'll give you the words to say. I am going to be there for you. I care about you. Even the hairs on your head and all bald men said, amen. I've heard people say, you know, I believe that faith is a private matter. Maybe you know people. that We shouldn't talk about our faith openly. You're entitled to your opinion. But if you, that that if you believe that, then your faith isn't faith in Jesus. Jesus said, confess your faith before others. I believe our faith is personal. I have no problem with that. It is. It means I can't believe for you. You can't believe for me. I can't believe for my kids. They can't believe for me. I can't believe for my wife. She can't believe for me. It's personal. It is. I have to make it my own. But we do have a responsibility to publicly tell others about our faith. When we acknowledge Jesus before others, he acknowledges us before the Father. And every time you let somebody know you're a different person because of Jesus, even if it's just a minute step, Jesus turns to his Father and says, Yeah, Dad, that one, that one there, he's, that one's, that's one of mine right there. He's one of my followers. He's doing it. He's on this road with me. And when we openly confess Jesus, there are some consequences, though, that we have to f- face. And, and not all of them are pleasant. And this is the upside-down kingdom. This is the craziness at times of being a Christian. Jesus says, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace, but a sword to earth. I didn't come to bring peace. I I, I came to bring this sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Well, that's, Jesus, this is why you're here. This has got to be a shock to his disciples when they hear him talking like this. They're sent out to proclaim the message of God, which is a message of peace. And they're told to let their peace come upon the home. You know, bless it, shalom, the home that you're going to stay in. May that peace be unto you. But now they hear their Lord. He has come to bring a sword. You know, we've all seen those, you know, real paintings of Jesus. You know, holding a little fuzzy lamb in his arms, warm, fuzzy, you know, precious moments, like Jesus type thing. But the idea of Jesus holding a sword, you got to think more like Mel Gibson and Braveheart. That's really what you're looking at. It upsets our sensibilities. So, what did Jesus mean with this radical statement that he came to bring a sword? He didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Don't forget the context. Context is Jesus is sending his disciples out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom is near. They're able to do miracles. They're able to do healings. He's doing all that. He's warning them that they are going to be people, as you go out with this message, that will be validated by signs and wonders. As you go out, people are going to reject your message. I'm going to, some of you are going to be arrested. Some of you are going to be killed for your testimony about me. When you understand the concept context of opposition, then the words that Jesus is now saying makes more sense. I'm going to bring a sword within that context of opposition. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, which one is it, Jesus? Because I don't really get it. I read that you're supposed to be the prince of peace, but your words in red letters say that you're bringing a sword. So what are you, Jesus? Are you the Prince of Peace or do you carry the sword? And the answer is yes to both. Jesus wants them and he wants us to know that he's coming. His coming is like a sword that splits people in two. And some people will believe and be for him while others will not believe due to their own sin, due to their own stubbornness, and they're going to be against him. The sword comes into play. There is no fence sitting when it comes to Jesus. We are either for him or you're against him. There's no middle ground, hence the concept of the sword. This division, however, is not something that's easy, especially when you think about it with the context, when it happens in our own families, with close people in our lives. This division can be painful, as we may have, I don't know, maybe you have arguments about faith at, at family parties and gatherings. You ever been there? Yeah. And perhaps it's a family rule that you can't talk about faith at those events. We're not talking church at events. Well, this de- division can actually be devastating, because as we see people in dangerous spots spiritually, and you're not allowed to share because somebody's putting things, the division then is created by Jesus. And it... Why? Because it can be awkward. It can be uncomfortable. Because why? You have your beliefs and somebody else has their own. And they're not willing to change. And because they're not willing to change and you're willing to say, look, I just need to share. Then the hostility begins to break out. And the message of Jesus' peace, listen to me carefully, creates division. And it creates division to the people that are closest and in the closest places in our lives. You ever wanna share with somebody, they pour out their hearts and you wanna share Jesus and they just don't wanna, they don't even wanna go there for you? I have somebody I wanna introduce, no, I don't wanna go there. You can talk to me about, I've been told, you can talk to me about anything but don't talk to me about Jesus. So much of what Jesus has said in this chapter has been misquoted. It's been taken out of context by many a Christian. And so let me just talk about two misunderstandings about this statement. The first one is that Jesus isn't opposed to peace. In fact, he says in scripture, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give as the world gives, he says in John. Jesus knew that there are different types of peace. He came to give us peace, but not the kind of peace that the world understands. In our time, people kept talking about the need for world peace. I, I, I think you see that all the time, especially what's going on in our news today. In fact, for years, um, whenever a beauty pageant contestant was asked the question, you know, what's one most important thing society needs? Usually the, the right answer all the time was world peace. And so I think every beauty pageant contestant should just say world peace to whatever question needs to be asked. I don't know if you ever watch these things. We used to watch them. I said most, most of the time in Victoria too. But I love this answer that happened about 10 years ago. I had to go look up. It was Miss Teen USA pageant and it was Miss South Carolina. And this is the question she was asked. Why do you think a fifth of Americans can't find the USA on a world map? That was her question. Well, here's her answer. Watch the video. Recent polls have shown a fifth of Americans can't locate the U.S. on a world map. Why do you think this is? I personally believe that U.S. Americans are unable to do so because uh, some people out there in our nation don't have maps, and uh, I believe that our ed- education, like such as in South Africa and uh, the Iraq, everywhere like such as, and I believe that they should, uh, our education over here in the US should help the US, um, or should help South Africa, and should help the Iraq and the Asian countries so we will be able to build up our future for our children. Thank you very much, South Carolina. <laughs> she should have just said world peace. But is world peace actually possible? Matthew 24, we'll get to it in time, but uh, Jesus said there will always be wars and rumors of wars, and he's right. Several years ago, historians tried to determine how many years of war and peace the world experienced over the last 5,600 years. They concluded that over the last 56 centuries, there have been 14,351 wars and over 3.6 billion people killed. In those wars alone. They concluded that of the 5,600 years, there were only 293 years of peace where there was no major war fought. So when Jesus says he didn't come to bring peace to earth, he wasn't saying that it was his job to end all wars. He didn't come to bring that kind of peace. But he came to bring another. He came to bring another important kind of peace. He says, my peace I give to you. And it's not the kind of peace the world understands. I love how our team sang the the song, Somewhere I Belong. It's it's a cry, again, of our culture. It's about someone who feels out of place, somebody who's feeling alone, and maybe they had a difficulty fitting in due, due to some of their own consequence of their actions. And that's really true of all of us, and Jesus is the response to that. He is that message of life transformation and peace that he gives us. Why? So then we can turn and begin to share it all around the world around us. And so Jesus really is all about peace. He came to give peace that comes from having a relationship with him as the Prince of Peace. He offers you and I something much more valuable than world peace. He offers you peace with God and, and the peace of God. Romans says, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an inner peace. It's that spiritual component that all of us are looking for. And In Ephesians, he says, he is our peace which has broken down every wall that has separated us from God. Colossians goes on, he came to make peace through the blood of the cross and then Philippians Philippians tells us that Jesus can give us this inner peace, and I love this, that passes all human understanding. And we see that peace manifested in a lot of people's lives where chaos and, and strife and trouble and sickness is going on, and you have a conversation and you go, How are you dealing with all this? I just got this peace and I can't explain it. The second misunderstanding is that Jesus doesn't advocate violence. We know that Jesus wasn't literally speaking about a sword because when he was being arrested in the garden of Gethsemane alone, Peter draws his sword to defend Jesus, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, Put your sword back in its place, for all who are going to draw the sword will die by the sword. Put it away. Interesting that, you know, Peter's been following Jesus for a long time. And he's packing heat. And again, this passage of Scripture has really been abused and misused throughout century as a rationale for violence in the name of Jesus. The Crusades are perfect examples how leaders with a lack of biblical understanding use this passage to motivate thousands of people to pick up a sword and declare war against the Muslims who were occupying the Holy Land of Israel. Hundreds of thousands of people died because of that. The Spanish Inquisition justified torture and the murder of of Jews and Muslims and non-Catholic Christians by misusing Scripture like this, that Jesus is all about the sword. April 12, 1922, Munich. Hitler gets up in his speech and he says this, My feelings as a Christian. Now remember who's saying this. My feelings as a Christian point me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. It points me to the man who once in loneliness, surrounded only by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned men to fight against them and who, God's truth, was greatest not as a sufferer but as a fighter. How terrific was his fight for the world against the Jewish poison. Today, after 2,000 years with deepest emotion, I recognize more profoundly than ever before the fact that it was for this that he had to shed his blood upon the cross. Hitler was wrong. Jesus wasn't a fighter, he's the lover. He's using a sword as a metaphor. There's no record that Jesus even picked up a sword in his hand, ever. The most agitated we ever saw him was when he drove the money changers out of the temple. Why? Because they were extorting people. They were ripping people off. And when you read all four accounts, you'll learn that he didn't attack the people. He turned over their tables. He drove the cattle out. But there's no indication that he committed any act of violence against the men running those scams. He didn't hate them. He hated what they were doing to the people. And the Christian faith isn't a religion that focuses on something worth killing for people. The Christianity is about a relationship with a person worth dying for. And Jesus taught that if somebody strikes you on one cheek, what are we supposed to do? We turn the other cheek. He didn't teach retaliation. He taught forgiveness. He never intended his his followers to be soldiers who use literal swords. That doesn't mean that Jesus taught us either all to be pacifists. Sorry, Mennonites. He forbids personal violence, but many committed Christians continue to serve in our military, fighting for our freedoms. But they carry the sword of the government authority, not for personal vendettas. Jesus never committed violence against anyone. He never took a life. Instead, he restored physical and spiritual life to many. And he offers eternal life to every. And that's the beauty. He goes on. He continues to tell us the cost of following him. Anybody who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Wow, he's not done. Anybody who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Here he mentions, it's interesting, the two most important relationships in our lives. Our parents, our children. Those above us and those below us, so to speak. And these two relationships are the probably and should be the most cherished and precious in our lives. And they can also be some of the most sensitive and emotionally charged ones as well, right? And following Jesus may cost us, our parents or our kids. And so we have to understand that Jesus' implied words here in this thought is that all he's saying is, you're supposed to love me more. We're supposed to love Jesus more than the cherished and precious people in our lives. Our loyalty to him is to be greater than that which we may show to others. And in situations where we're to pick between our parents, our children, other loved ones, or Jesus, really what he's saying is, you need to pick me. When somebody says, choose me in my ways rather than your Jesus in his ways, we need to choose Jesus. Jesus. And there will be consequences. And it's not easy. And that's the sword that starts coming in. There will be fallout. There will be friction in our relationships because of that. Because things may never be the same again. And Jesus is just bringing it to attention that if we need to be sold out to him. And what do we do when that happens? Oh, we still have to love people. Notice what he says, whoever loves his father or mother, whoever loves his son or daughter. Notice, he doesn't say, well, don't love them anymore. No, you still love them. We love Jesus and them, but we love Jesus more. We attempt to keep loving even when they're hostile against us. Maybe some of you are dealing with that just within your own family dynamic. We're to show love when people are upset and when things are awkward and when things get tense because of this division. Why? Because we are sold out to Christ. And yet the people I care about the most, the ones that I've brought into the world, maybe just despise me or hate me for decisions i made or whatever, but I am sold out to Christ. That's the division. That's the sword. And we show that person the love that Jesus has not only for us, but also for them. And another thing we do is we pray. Because you and I cannot change hearts, no matter how hard we try, right? You see that in personal relationships all the time. No matter how hard you try, you can't change another person's heart. Only Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, can do that. And so what we do is we begin to pray. We begin to pray for patience and wisdom and discernment. And we wait and we ask for his peace. And we ask for his comfort in the whole process. We're to love Jesus more than the things of the world and life itself. And you know what? It's hard. And it's very hard in the first world that we live in. Jesus says, whoever doesn't take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, that talk of the cross would have been very intriguing to the disciples because the cross was the most vile way to die in the ancient world. It was considered the epitome of shame and, and, and suffering. And in our Christian life, we will have to bear crosses like this, so to speak. Let's be honest. Following Jesus can bring suffering and hardship and maybe, in some cases, maybe not here, but overseas, death. We might be mocked or ridiculed for our faith. We might lose a promotion at work because of our beliefs. And our beliefs and consciences will be challenged. Oh, you're a Christian. Maybe we can lose jobs. That's a possibility. Maybe we will lose opportunities. We definitely lose the chance to fit in. We just don't fit in. We're square pegs in a round hole. I just don't fit. I don't fit. All at the cost of following Jesus and believing in him. But our Lord comforts us. And he's got these paradoxical words. He says, whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. It's either our loss of this life by either suffering, by sword, by shame for Jesus. And that because we cling to him, that in that process, then we have life forever. And Jesus says that in our loss, We have the greatest gain and comfort. And so what we understand in a a culture that doesn't want to hear it is that the cost of following Jesus can actually be great. But the cost of not following Jesus is actually greater. So what do we learn from this passage? What do we learn from this little commission? Well, first of all, when you openly confess Jesus, some people are going to cut you out of their lives. That's the reality of becoming a Christian. Harsh words. When you openly confess Jesus, some people are just going to cut you out of their lives. Again, the idea of the sword, division. Someone once said there are two kinds of people in the world, those who group all the people into two categories and those who don't. According to Jesus, all mankind is divided between those who are followers of Jesus and those who are not yet followers of Jesus. He said, who is not with me is against me. In Matthew 25, he predicts a time when people will, where he will separate sheep and goats, and we'll get to that story in time. There's this great divide that goes on. Since the beginning of our faith, there has been persecution and the execution of Christians. Hebrews chapter 11, we have what is often called the roll call of faith. But it's also called the the poster children for the persecuted by some. Because all of them, as the author of Hebrews writes, suffered and many of them lost their lives. The chapter of Hebrews 11, it concludes with this observation. It says, some faced jeers and flogging. Still others were chained and put in prison. They were sought and chewed. They were put to death by the sword. That is the price that many people have paid for their faith in Christ. In Canada, we're not arrested for our faith. But when you stand up for Jesus, there are going to be some of your friends who may cut you out of their lives. They may no longer invite you to their parties or include you in their activities. And you may be ostracized and rejected. And it can hurt like being cut with a knife. And it's not just friends, but it's also family. And that's the sword that Jesus talks about. Unless you think the death and martyrdom of Christians is something far from history, think again. The Voice of the Martyrs posted that more people were martyred for the sake of the gospel in the 20th century than all the previous centuries combined. As many as 160,000 believers reportedly make the ultimate sacrifice each year. At current rates, one in every 200 Christians around the world can be expected to be martyred. But all we bring is a message of peace. Why are you killing us for a message of peace? In his earthly ministry, Jesus is going around claiming to be the Messiah. His own family refuses to believe in him. Again, when they heard about this, they went and they tried to take hold of him because he was out of his mind. In some cultures, if a family member becomes a Christian, they're actually considered dead, cut out. I know that here, many of you don't have family members who are Christians, and at family gatherings, you have to watch what you say, because if you bring up faith, what happens? The battle comes out. Verbal swords are drawn. The fight begins. And, of course, we love our family members. We really do. Even the crazy uncles and aunts, right? We love them. We love them when they're far away. It's usually a whole lot easier, but that's just the way it is. And Jesus said, though, that our love for him has to be supreme. So when you openly confess Jesus, you must daily die to self. I think this is another hard part in our culture is that Jesus says the best way to deal with being cut off or rejected is really just take up your cross and to follow him. Taking up a cross doesn't mean wearing a cross. I just want to, you know, make that straight. Following, you know... Taking up a cross doesn't mean you wear this cross, you hang it one on your wall, you know, this is a cross. In Jesus' day, when you saw somebody carrying a cross, it it literally meant one thing. It meant that they were going to die. And I really believe most Christians truly want to share their faith and they want to confess Jesus openly, but they don't for one simple reason, especially in our culture, it's because we're afraid. And they aren't afraid that somebody's going to pull out a sword and kill them, especially in Canada, but we're afraid that we're just not going to fit in. And the only way to get over our fear and the only way to get over our embarrassment is to die daily. And that means to die to our flesh. You see, the flesh or the self wants to avoid embarrassment. I want to avoid embarrassment. I want to avoid ridicule. But when you die to self, it no longer stings when somebody makes fun of you or criticizes you. Try la- wearing the label pastor. Oh, goodness. You know, you can go to a funeral home view a body and say, well, that's an ugly tie. Hmm. You know, Well, that's a bad haircut. That's not going to bother the guy a bit that's in the casket, is it, right? They're dead. When you become dead to self, you're less sensitive to the insults as well. After a while, you just blow it off. Maybe try quoting this verse every day to see if it doesn't give you the boldness to openly confess Jesus. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me in the life that I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so when you openly confess Jesus, you gain more than you lose. We really do. Jesus says in verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That means if you live your life only for yourself, you lose. That's our culture. That's the Western culture. But if you lose your life for Jesus, then you win. There's really no middle ground here. You can choose to spare your life or to sacrifice your life. But when you lose your life for the cause of Christ, then we discover what real life is. And Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and life to the full. There's peace. There's life. It's abundant life. It's joyful life. And yet there's a world around us that just hates it. Some people say that you have to give up a lot to become a Christian. And I, I, listen, they're right. And when we come to Jesus, we give up everything. But what we gain is so much greater and it's so much better. Man, I'll give up guilt for forgiveness any day. I'll give up worrying for confidence in Jesus any day. I'll give up frustration just to have the gain and a purpose for living any day. I'll gladly give up hell just to have heaven any day. Famous missionary who was killed, martyred for his face. He was right when he said, there is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. So here's the takeaway in this passage this morning. When you and I are radically in love, when you and I are simply in love, when you and I just love Jesus, we truly follow him. And because of that, because that we put him first in our life, and he gives us the heads up, we risk being hurt, we risk being cut like by a sharp sword in many areas and facets in our life, but he encourages us and comes along alongside us, and he says, "The risk is worth the reward." So where is God speaking to you this morning? Let's pray. And Jesus, I thank you for your word and giving us such vibrant, dynamic pictures of people who saw the reality of your kingdom and would do anything to get it. And the thought that you would give your life, your body, your blood for me is more than actually I can really comprehend or understand. And we want to live lives that reflect the the love relationship that we have with you. So please forgive us when we think that we're trying to impress you with our duties our desire is that the, the obedience of our giving of our time, our treasures, our talents will, will flow from our love. And we want to be obedient. We want to serve. We want to pray for all the right reasons that come from knowing that the price has been paid. And I ask for those who maybe know Jesus but simply believe because they just don't want to go to hell. My prayer is that you would show them so much more to your love relationship. Thank you for paying the price that we may have this kind of relationship with you, and I pray that you would melt the hearts of those who may have not accepted your words. May they experience that you are the way, that you are the truth, that you are the life. And for those who have grown up in homes and religious situations that were not true to the scriptures, and have never come to the point of saying, Yes, I want Jesus. I ask in doing so that they would come and embrace you in an absolutely new entire way of living. This is my request, God, that I bring to you this morning. Why don't you stand with me? We know that there are a lot of people, even here this morning, that always have questions. And sometimes we're afraid to ask, sometimes we get the emails. sometimes we get the, the, you know, casual conversations on the side. You need to know that we're always open for that. And upon talking with some of our leadership on a Sunday, we see how the success of Growth Tracks happens during the second gathering. Um, It's just convenient for everybody. We're going to be starting, in the new year, we're going to be starting our... um, soul-searching program, our um, alpha program, whatever you want to call it. It's the introductory program where if you have questions about faith, this is for you. And so I want to challenge you who are believers here today that this becomes a great opportunity for you who have friends who have a whole lot of questions. We have an eight-week series that we would go through that will be shown upstairs, guided by Pastor Jordan McClellan, where we just walk people through with all the questions. We all have people who have questions. It's up to you to, to say the nine easy words. Would you like to come to church with me? And they don't have to come here and listen to me pontificate. No, you can come here for the music, but after coffee in the 11-11, you go upstairs and we go through the questions. A safe place. It fits with everybody's time. It, we provide the childcare, so to speak. Why? Because we have our, our kids' ministry happening. And it's a win-win for everybody. So my challenge to you is, will you pray that God would place people in your life that would open the door that you could have the conversation with them? Would you pray that? And maybe it's you that needs that conversation. And maybe you're just not ready to come and talk to us yet or whatever. That's fine. That's totally cool. But maybe when we have the sign-up list, you'll be the first to put your name on there and you want to walk through this process and we want to walk through it with you. I'm glad that you're here this morning. I hope that you're encouraged. I hope that we understand what the scriptures say. It's not all fluffy and unicorn style. That there's a cost. And we see the cost. And sometimes we can't figure it out. But Jesus has already warned us ahead of time. So Soul Sanctuary, be blessed. When you leave this place, make a difference in somebody's life. Maybe it's going to be two bucks to a person. Like, again... The guys holding the signs drive me crazy. I know it's illegal, but why do I keep giving them change? Because the poor will always be with us. What about the neighbors? What about the coworkers? What about the other people that you can just create? Who is God placing on your heart to start the conversation with? And ask the Lord to do that. Ask him to reveal it. Ask him to open the doors. And when those doors or windows get open, jump through them. And let's see what happens. In ancient times, the one who blessed, extended his hands for a blessing. One receiving a blessing did likewise. Here's your blessing. It's from the 14th century. St. Teresa of Avila. She says, God has no hands but our hands to do work His way. God has no feet but our feet to lead others in His way. God has no voice but our voice to tell others how He died. And God has no help but our help to lead them to His side. Ah, You may say you don't know what to do. But God has equipped you with all the tools necessary. Be blessed. We'll see you next week.